Welcome to the JIMD podcast, a podcast dedicated to the fascinating world of inherited metabolic disease. In fortnightly episodes, I'm joined by journal authors to ask them to take me through their work, allowing them to share the stories behind their research and giving you the chance to catch up on your reading when you don't have the time to read. We've over 100 episodes, so be sure to subscribe to never miss a thing, but not before listening to this latest episode discussing long-term outcomes, racial diversity and ascertainment bias in galactosemia. Hello there. Now, I like to think of all my guests as friends of the podcast. Certainly, we don't have any enemies. Uh, give it time. But returning guests are extra special. And today's guest has appeared in two regular podcasts, one shortcast, and it's always delightful to hear her speak about galactosemia. It's the inimitable Professor Judith Fridovich-Kyle of the Department of Human Genetics at Emory University School of Medicine. Judy, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. And on the previous occasions when we've spoken, it's been about your work on gene therapy, but the two papers we're focusing on today are a little different. Uh, One looks at acute and long-term outcomes in patients who carry the, I'm going to get this wrong, S135LC.404C to T variant of the GALT gene, and the other looks at racial and ethnic diversity of galactosemia patients in the United States. Both papers are littered with terms like CG, CBG, and to a lesser extent, DG. Can we start with a kind of a brief glossary? What do do all these mean? So galactosemia is actually a family of disorders. They share that galactose metabolism is impaired. So CG, CBG, and DG are all part of type 1 galactosemia. There are four different types now that are distinguished by which of the enzymes in the Lillevoire pathway are impaired. Type 1 galactosemia refers to transferase deficiency galactosemia, and CG stands for classic galactosemia, and that results from profound or complete loss of GALT activity. CVG is clinical variant galactosemia, and that is the term used when a patient has just a little bit of non-zero GALT activity, so maybe 1% or 2% GALT activity. And DG, Duarte galactosemia, is defined by the presence of one allele carrying what are called the D2 or Duarte 2 variants, which basically compromise expression of GALT from that allele by about 50%, the other allele being what could be a classic or profoundly impaired allele. So the combination of a D2 and a G gives about 25% residual activity. And we and others have done a lot of work on those. And basically, it is also called biochemical variant because you can pick it up, but clinically, the patients do just fine. So these days, most of our work looks at classic or clinical variant galactosemia, CG and CVG. And of course, your rather excellent shortcast was explaining outcomes in Duarte galactosemia. So it's certainly worth checking that out if there's any doubt there. So it seems that this S135L gene variant is an unfamiliar one for me. What's special about this variant in galactosemia? And why is there a positive knowledge around this patient group? So S135L is a very special allele. It is predominant in patients of specific ancestries, African ancestry for sure, and a few other groups as well. And so if you look at galactosemia patients in Africa, the vast majority of them will carry one or both alleles S135L 
Whereas patients in Britain, they're almost all Q188R. There are just different alleles that are predominant in, in different ancestries. And S135L historically has been considered mild. And part of the reason for that is that a very small number of patients carrying S135L were identified and they had milder outcomes, but they were very few and far between. And so I and many others always really feared that the data we had about S135L was too sparse to feel confident about. And so if you wanted to give accurate prognostic information to the family of a new baby and the baby carries S135L, many families were being told, as long as you follow the diet, everything will be just fine. But I knew because we had a couple of patients in our study that everything wasn't just fine. And they had been picked up early by newborn screening and the parents were very careful with the diet. So I was worried that there was a mismatch between the general belief of S135L being really mild and at least the small number of patients who I had seen in our study who maybe they were milder than the average Q188R homozygote, but they were not asymptomatic. And so I and some colleagues, Quinn Catler was the lead author on this. He was a fellow working in, in my lab at the time. So we sent out emails to all of the appropriate listservs that we had access to. We sent emails to colleagues around the U.S. and in different countries. And we asked, does anybody have patients with S135L? And we were very fortunate that many people responded. And I should say, um, Carolina Stepien was also extremely instrumental in this study. So she helped to coordinate getting data for a lot of the patients outside the U.S. And Quinn and I did most from within the U.S. And by beating the bushes, we were able to find 37 patients, which was a huge number for S135L. And 25 of them were compound heterozygotes, 12 of them were homozygotes. And so we collected data to say, how are they doing? How was their neonatal experience? Did they have acute symptoms as they got older? Did they have problems with speech? You know, all of the outcomes that are associated with classical lactosemia, we wanted to know how are these patients doing? And so then we just sort of did the bookkeeping and compared. And because we have a, a large study going on looking at patients of, you know, whatever genotype they happen to have with classical actosemia, we were able to put together a large reference population that had GALT alleles that should have no residual activity or, or basically undetectable. And we compared like, what's the prevalence of a speech problem in the GALT null group versus in the S135L compound heterozygotes versus in the S135L homozygotes. And we could do that for each of the different outcome domains that people tend to worry about with galactosemia. And what we found was, sure enough, having even one copy of S135L as a group, they had milder outcomes, but there were definitely individuals in each of the groups who needed clinical attention who, who were not asymptomatic. So I think it offered a more robust evidence-based prognosis for, for patients with S135L. And it was also a stark reminder that we really should not make broad assumptions based on very, very limited data. 
And when you study a rare disease, unfortunately, sometimes limited data is all you've got. So you do the best you can. But I think this was a reminder that you need to be very cautious when trying to extrapolate from one or two patients because they may or may not be representative. And is this, I mean, we've talked before about the diet independent consequences of galactosemia and the fact that current management is not adequate. Are these patients who on a restrictive diet are still having these complications? Correct. So they're picked up by newborn screening, just like any other patient. They are put on galactose restricted diet very early and they have as a group milder long-term outcomes. But again, there are individuals who are absolutely having problems with speech, problems in school, all of the expected outcomes, not to the same prevalence and maybe not to the same severity as an equivalently sized group of patients with true null vault activity. But parents should not assume just because their child has S135L that their child is going to have a mild clinical course because we've seen too many exceptions to that. Um, before we talk about your other paper, and this is kind of relevant because we're talking about the issue of the fact that we have often in any form of genetic medicine a, a lack of heterogeneity in terms of the populations we look after. You said this is a variant that's more commonly seen in Africa. Were you collaborating with any African-based clinicians? So I, I have tried. So I have met several wonderful clinicians in Africa, in, in South Africa, actually. And the main problem is that they do not have newborn screening for galactosemia. And in fact, they are trying very hard to get that instituted because their patients with classic galactosemia suffer acute symptoms, just like the ones in the UK or the US or, or Europe. And so the problem is that they have very limited ascertainment at this point, and they do not have a large cohort with follow-up. So I tried very, very hard to get contribution of patients who actually live in Africa, but basically we were not able to secure the needed information for patients who had been identified early enough that we didn't have to worry about meningitis or other serious complications in the newborn period and who had been followed long enough that we could say, we know if this child is going to have speech problems or have cognitive problems because they're old enough that that would have appeared. So I really, really tried and I really, really wish that we had had a large contingent of patients from Africa. And I hope that my colleagues there will be successful in getting newborn screening set up because that really is the key. And it's no criticism to you and, and hands up, you know, I'm in the UK, we don't screen for galactosemia either. I mean, my, my hope is that the paper showing that S135L patients outside of Africa do not all have mild outcomes will perhaps serve as some motivation for the, the governments who make decisions about newborn screening to perhaps be willing to put some more resources into newborn screening for galactosemia, because I think previously they were able to say, oh, well, the literature says that these patients are, you know, very mildly affected. And now at least there's a counterpoint. Hmm. And also a, a cheap treatment Yes. Which is, it's rare in IMD to, to offer a cheap treatment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've gone off on a tangent there. So let's come back to the other paper. It is a little bit different. You're discussing racial and ethnic diversity of classic and variant galactosemia in the US. I think we are increasingly aware that the data in genetic disease often reflects narrow, sometimes very homogenous populations. 
And it's hard to know how generalizable this information is. Yeah. So that's exactly what motivated this study. My lab has been collecting observational data about patients since, I guess, 1992. So for a very long time. And we collect patients from wherever we can find them. Most are U.S., but not all. And the vast majority is overwhelmingly, you know, self-identifies as white or Caucasian. And I was worried that we're missing a big slice. And we recruit many of our study participants from membership of the Galactosemia Foundation or, you know, basically anywhere we can find people. But I was very worried that we had bias in our cohort. And I wanted to know, well, how would we know if we had bias in our cohort? And part of what motivated this is that some years ago when we studied Duarte Galactosemia, we found that the newborn screening programs were were sending out our recruiting envelopes, but the vast majority, almost everybody who responded, self-identified as white or Caucasian. And I looked at that and I was like, oh my God, what is happening here? And then I remembered we had actually done a, a study and the Duarte II allele actually clearly arose in Europe. And so if you look at the racial and ethnic distribution of babies getting screened, but then you look at the racial and ethnic distribution of babies identified with Duarte galactosemia, even if you have a very heterogeneous group of babies getting screened, the ones being diagnosed with Duarte galactosemia are almost all white. And the reason is that in order to have Duarte galactosemia, you have to have a Duarte allele. And the Duarte allele is very common in individuals of European ancestry and almost unseen in patients of African ancestry or Asian ancestry. And so it wasn't that something about our recruitment letter was biasing us towards only getting white people to respond. Predominantly only white people have Duarte galactosemia. So that was an observation that was kind of in the back of my mind. And I wanted to know, was that also true of classic galactosemia? I didn't think it would be, but I didn't know. And looking in the literature, there really was nothing out there to answer that question. If you want a representative patient cohort, what should that cohort look like? And so we approached that question in each of two ways. And here the colleagues were Nicole Stetner, who actually was an undergraduate in my lab at the time, and Dave Cutler, who is a population geneticist who has an office two doors down from mine. And it's a wonderful guy. We've collaborated on a number of studies. And the first thing we did was Dave looked at population data that's publicly available, and he was able to pull basically every variant within the GALT locus that was classified as either pathogenic or likely pathogenic. And he was able to look at individuals of African ancestry, individuals of South Asian, East Asian, you know, European ancestries. And so he basically said of the pathogenic or likely pathogenic GALT variants in these different ancestries and combining that with knowing the racial and ethnic diversity of the screened population in the United States, which is available on the CDC website, we were able to make an estimate of what fraction of newborns of different ancestries would we expect to exist in the screened population. And what he found was that we would predict that 65% of them would be classified as white, 23% would be classified as black, 
I think 10% would be classified as Hispanic and 2% would be classified as Asian. Now, let me point out a, a problem here. Hispanic is an ethnicity. It is not a biological definition of your allele frequencies. But unfortunately, newborn screening in the United States, they don't check both a race box and an ethnicity box. They just check a box. And it's not the family filling out the box. It's a nurse or some other healthcare provider. And so there are a lot where it's checked unknown. You know, basically, if the nurse looks at the baby and can't figure it out, or the nurse looks at the mother, she doesn't see the father. So that's a big caveat to these data. That would be a study in itself, wouldn't it, comparing the nurse's assessment of a patient's ethnicity versus the uh, self-assessment of ethnicity? Yes, but recognizing all those caveats, you know, we predicted 65% white, 23% black, 10% Hispanic, 2% Asian. Then we looked at actual newborn screening data from the same years. And here we were able to get this from a wonderful woman who works for the organization that includes all newborn screening labs. And for privacy reasons, she wasn't able to say these data come from this state, but she had data from 37 states and she was able to put together for all the data she had. We don't know what the states were, so we had to make some assumptions there, but she was able to get us a bunch of information that had a total of 235 newborns who had been identified with classic or clinical variant. They don't get distinguished by newborn screening. And of those babies, 17% of them, race and ethnicity was unknown. But of the remaining, 66% were classified as white, 15% were Hispanic, 16% were Black, and 2% were Asian. So statistically, it was actually not that different from what we predicted from the alleles. So this was informative for a number of reasons. The first one was it said, yeah, if we have a patient cohort that is only five or 7% African-American, we're missing a big chunk. And so we continue to try to increase that. But again, this is the US, we can't force people to participate in studies. And there are a lot of reasons why people choose to participate or not participate in studies. But at least we can recognize that we have a problem and we have an idea of how big of a problem. And we can be mindful of that when trying to interpret the results. So I think the, the bottom line of the study was that while Duarte variant galaxemia may be a rather racially homogeneous disorder, classical galactosemia is not. And clearly in different populations, in different jurisdictions, this could easily be extended and people could do this for their own newborn screening programs if they know the racial makeup of the babies who get screened in their populations to say what fraction of their galactosemic babies should be from one ancestry or another. And it is getting more and more complicated because many babies have mixed ancestry. And so oftentimes the nurse looks at the baby, she doesn't really know what the mixed ancestry is. So you see a, a big disparity between what is on the newborn screening card and for instance, even what is in birth certificates because the birth certificate form is filled out by the family. They know their ancestry, the nurse doesn't. So take everything with a big grain of salt but we need to have more diverse patient populations when we study outcomes in galactosemia. 
one of the things it does make you realise is that it's because this is a disease that seems to be equally distributed across a diverse ethnic population. It's important that when we prepare resources for families, those resources reflect that both sort of yeah. in their imagery, but also in their kind of cultural Agreed. references so that you kind of acknowledge different feeding practices and different dietary habits amongst different groups as well, because it's not helpful for families if their baby receives a diagnosis and then all the literature they receive doesn't seem to reflect them. And I, I suppose the question is, I mean, how do, how do we get these data sets that, that are more representative? I mean, I know that the JMD, we predominantly publish work from the US and Europe. Um, this paper was in MGM. <sighs> Don't get me started. Um, I suspect it's no different. What, what could be done to ensure that IMD research properly reflects this, you know, the increase in diverse populations that we serve? Uh, that's the million dollar question. And it's not just for metabolic diseases, there are many conditions that are not racially homogeneous, but the populations studied either because of the clinics they're recruited from or the family support groups they're recruited from. I I think that ideally, I would love to have when a family is notified that their baby has been diagnosed with classic lactosemia, I would love for them to get a letter that says there are research studies that would not be invasive and would help society better understand this disease and perhaps give better prognostic information for children like yours, would you participate? I would love to have that happen and have made steps to try to get recruiting opportunities in place so that we could recruit at the point of diagnosis. But there are all sorts of IRB and privacy reasons why many newborn screening programs are not in a position or don't have the time or personnel to send out another letter. So I think that in populations where everyone is part of the same health system, so for instance, they can do amazing studies in Denmark because the data are accessible for study. In the United States, it's a total patchwork quilt with a lot of holes in it. And so everything from recruiting to having access to data to enrolling people, there are just huge roadblocks at every single step. We need to get them as early as possible and as uniformly as possible. And for the US right now, that is not going to be easy. Um, Well, I'm not sure we've We've solved this. As you say, it's a million dollar question, perhaps not one for a quick podcast to have laid to rest, but it's always interesting to speak with you, Judy. I think if people would like to read these papers, please do click the links in the podcast description, or you can find the S135L paper on the JMD webpages just by searching for S135L variant GALT. Um, And if you'd like to hear more from Judy, please do check out our back catalogue. I think all that remains for me is to say, Judy, thank you once again for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.